Living Color. Calhoun. Muzz. And Cork. We listen to WCBN-FM and Arbor. 88.3 FM. This will haunt you. What if the sun don't rise when it's supposed to? What if the birds stop flying? When will the air turn thick and water? If you love me, why am I dying? What if the sun don't rise when it's supposed to? Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And today I'm so pleased to have Karen Joy Fowler um, joining us via phone from Santa Cruz, California. Karen, welcome to Living Writers. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's great to, to hear you across the miles. Um, and and also to have stop for a moment and think of Santa Cruz because it always seems like a, a a bit of a piece of paradise out there. It's pretty wonderful. I walked along the ocean this morning and there were whales, so that's always magical. Oh, oh, that's oh, that is that's wonderful. Do you know what type of whales they were? If they were migrating, or was it a? a I'm sure they were migrating. I just saw the spouts and the tails. Oh, oh so that's something to see, Karen. Well, welcome to Living Writers. And we're going to be talking um, quite a bit, I think, about the animal world today. So that's a, a perfect, um, I don't know, the, thinking about the whales is a perfect way to start. Um, before we go any further, I'm, I'm just going to read your short bio um, from your website, KarenJoyFowler.com. Um, today, um Karen is is joining us to talk about her novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. Um, And this was out last year with Plume uh, and the Penguin Group Random House. And I've I've picked it as the the first ever summer read book for living writers. So so here we are. (laughs) We're gathered here. Thank you so much. Uh, well, thanks for thanks for coming on the show, Karen. Um, okay, without further ado, here is the bio. Karen Joy Fowler is the author of six novels and three short story collections. The Jane Austen Book Club spent 13 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list and was a New York Times notable book. Fowler's previous novel, Sister Noon, was a finalist for the 2001 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. Her debut novel, Sarah Canary, was a New York Times notable book, as was her second novel, The Sweetheart Season. In addition, Sarah Canary won the Commonwealth Medal for Best First Novel by a Californian and was listed for the Irish Times International Fiction Prize, as well as the Bay Area Book Reviewers Prize. Fowler's short story collection, Black Glass, won the World Fantasy Award in 1999, and her collection, What I Didn't See, won the World Fantasy Award in 2011. Fowler and her husband, who have two grown children and five grandchildren, live in Santa Cruz, California, next to the whales. (laughs) 
to the whales. I need to update the bio because I've got six grandchildren now. Six grandchildren. Okay. I do. All boys. All of them boys. Oh. Well, a shout out to the newest member of the troop. And um, and, and maybe who knows? Maybe there'll be a, an, another one coming along. Uh, I, I think this is it. I'm pretty sure this is it. Well, you do. You have enough for like a, like, you could be like another Sound of Music family at this point. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> Which is not to say that you've picked any of the Sound of Music to, for today's show, but you did pick <laughs> all the songs. Um, Karen, why did you pick the first one? What was the, what was the um, reason for this song pick? Oh, just, um, as I said, you know, I live here by the ocean and, um, so the issues of global warming are always on my mind, and I love that song. I love that. Uh, I love that band, and um, it just seemed like something we all ought to be thinking about. Yes, and a, a good way to set the tone too. I think great, great song choice. I'm thinking about. I'm gonna think about global warming. Your your book made me think so much, Karen. Um, we are all completely beside ourselves. A novel. Um, for, are you, are, I mean, when you had this, this book come out, Karen, um, were you, did you have people coming up to you to talk with you a lot about um, human-animal relationships? Was that, um, I don't know, that something that seemed to happen? Yes, um, I think I have had a lot of that. And um, more surprisingly, or uh, perhaps less surprisingly, surprisingly to me, um, I've, a number of those people have um, been people who uh, were raised with chimps in the home at some point in their lives. And I knew that there were a number of them, but I did not expect to hear from any of them. And oh, so that that is interesting. Were, were people saying, um, contacting you oh, in a way to, to thank you for telling a story they recognized? I think um, to tell them, uh, I think they mostly wanted to tell me their story. Uh, okay. Which which often overlapped with the story I told, but in some ways did not. And that, I mean, it's so interesting because you're, the characters that you create in this book, I know that you said in the acknowledgments, you thank, I think, your your daughter for the, like the, the idea from New Year's Eve once. She said, you know, maybe I imagine that she said, Ma, you should write about this. Um, is that yes. is that how it happened? No, that's exactly how it happened. <laughs> and, and you know, it was in the context of a larger conversation. It didn't come completely out of the blue. But yes, she. I was telling her um, a story about uh, a psychological experiment that took place in the 1930s and involved a child. And she said, "Wow, what would it be like to be that kid? You should write that. You, you should write that next." And and your father was a behavioral psychologist Karen he was yes he worked with rats so so you had some sort of like when you were growing up you had some um well you obviously weren't raised with rats that's not what I'm implying um but there was we had a house full of animals and often there were rats in the house but rats would wash out from my dad's lab and come home and be pets instead and 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 so retire with you guys basically yes (laughs) It's <laughs> wonderful. When I worked at Richard Hugo House in Seattle, one of my interns, Marielle, she would bring her pet rat to work and it would just sit in her hoodie. Um, it, 
a, a great. Yes, they're very great, portable. Great pal. Yeah, exactly. And very quiet at the office. Really, I, I recommend them. They're much quieter than the gerbils. Um, but anyway, um, so can you talk a little bit about like we, we are all completely beside ourselves. So this idea sort of came up in a conversation. And then do, could you talk about the process a little bit, Karen, of writing the book? Well, the book involves, as we've um, sort of already hinted, um, animals and people, and among the animals are chimps, and among the people are psychologists. And um, when I started thinking about the book, um, I thought that I did not know very much about chimps and that I was going to have to do a lot of research and talk to a lot of people and try to get comfortable that I I would not be conveying inaccurate information. Um, But... I comforted myself that I knew a lot about psychologists. I've been around psychologists since the day I was born. So yes. that part would need no research at all. <laughs> yes, the the father character is very well developed, <laughs> as they all are, actually. Thank you. So so how, how did you do, so did you, is that when you went to the Chimpanzee and Human Communication Institute in Ellensburg, Washington? Yes. Yes, while I, while I was researching the book, I should say that um, I did not, in fact, take my daughter's advice about doing it next. That I had actually that the conversation we had was actually happened on the millennial New Year, and um, and I I thought it was a great idea for a book, and I came home and I started doing the reading I thought would be necessary and sketching out sort of the first couple of pages. Um, and then I set it aside to write the Jane Austen Book Club. And then I went to my editor after the Jane Austen Book Club, and I said, well, I have two ideas for books, and I'm going to write them both, but I don't care which order I write them in, so you tell me which one you want me to do next. And she picked um, a book about a mystery writer, which uh, came out and was called Wit's End. Oh, yes. So um, I've been thinking about We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves for you know more than a decade, but I have not actually been working steadily on it all of that time. And and so, Karen, what um, can you can you remember what those first pages were like? Like what was sort of the first images that came to you with it? Was the it, first did, images that came to me were that um, the child in this experiment um, would be very valued um, for her language, for um, her ability to communicate in language, and that she would have, as a result of this childhood, in which being um, verbose and uh, and articulate would be prized, she would have a particular relationship to language. And uh, having sort of started there, I... I, in my entire cast of characters in the book, um, tried to begin by thinking about them all in terms of um, what their relationship to language was. Uh, a lot of questions about who's allowed to speak, who's listened to when they speak, who can't speak, um, who who you might speak for. All of those issues were very prominent in my head when I was... Um, dreaming the book up. And so the the original first pages are pretty close to the prologue that's in the book now, which is about which which basically 
introduces the main character, uh, Rosemary. Uh, it's a first-person narrative, and so she begins by telling you that as a child she used to talk a great deal, but that she has been quiet for many, many years. And the book is um, represents her her speaking again, her her beginning to tell her story again after after this silence. And um, Karen, do you have a copy of? Are you holding a copy of We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves? Too. I am. Um, would you Would you want to read a part of that? Just um, part part from the prologue. Sure. Yeah, um, because I do realize we did, I didn't set up the the story, and we did just kind of hint at it. And I'm interested to know, I guess, what your what how you would how you frame the story when you're talking about it, because the the Rosemary waits till the middle of the book to talk about Fern. And the back of the the book jacket doesn't. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this you know this this um, what to say about the book it has been an enormous issue and conundrum for everybody involved. It um, I, I in my defense um, will say that I really didn't stop and think about. Uh, what a problem I was creating for marketing and for reviewers, but because the, the book is organized around a surprise that you, um, if you read the book the way I intended you to read it, hopefully will be um, quite a big surprise. And it happens, as you said, maybe maybe a quarter into the book, maybe a third into the book, um, that you you learn that you finally learn in fact what the book is really about um and so when i went out um to do uh, you know events with the book um i tried for, during the first year when the, when it was just the hardcover that was out which did not have the same thing on the back cover ah. i did try to talk about the book and keep it a surprise um oh geez. since yeah um since the paperback has come out i've i've kind of given up on that um which i think it, you know certainly makes it easier to talk about the book because trying to persuade everybody that they really ought to read um, <laughs> a book that but that i'm actually not going to be able to tell them anything about what it's about has been tricky it, yes yes so i'm hoping so so karen is it fair to say that since we are holding the well at least i am holding the paperback in my hand that we can talk about fern as in her yes. full character okay yes <laughs> okay. yes we right. can well I'll tell you what why don't we we'll take a short break and then when we come back um if you wouldn't mind reading part of the book, any anywhere in the story that you feel um, that you'd like to to dip into, or, or you know, uh, would be great, Karen. And and we'll say okay. right now that Karen will be coming to our area here at, to the Novi Library, and it's 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 in a, in the future in November. Um, the 18th of November. But Karen, why don't you also, I'd love to have you come um, come to the studio and we can do a, a part two if you have time when you're in town. That would be fabulous. Okay. I would love that. Well, well, let's, we'll take a short break and then we'll come back. Today on the program, Karen Joy Fowler joins us from Santa Cruz, California. Her novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. We'll be right back. I love the mountains, I love the rolling hills, I love the flowers, I love the death. 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Karen Joy Fowler is here on Living Writers. But we've got the Liz engineering behind the glass. Karen calling in um, from Santa Cruz, California. Karen, thanks for being on Living Writers today. It's a pleasure. <laughs> well, I think the pleasure's all ours, actually. <laughs> um, so what part of the book do you think would be... Um, will you read for us? Um, I thought that um, perhaps I would just read the first page of Chapter 1, which is not exactly the beginning of the book because there's a prologue, but um, but sort of sets the, the time, at least, the time and place and of you, the book, if that's okay. That sounds wonderful. And you, you have the book, um, you've split it into parts with and using... Um, and there's an epigraph with Franz from Franz Kafka, a report for an academy, and yes, and right before the part that you're going to read for us, part one, um, the quote from Kafka is the storm which blew me out of my past eased off, and so the the Kafka was a bit of a, um, I I guess was he. I'm, I want to. I don't want to say inspiration, but I guess I'm just going to have to say that, Karen. Like with that, <laughs> with that, when you were writing this book, using him as part of the sections is well, how using particularly was... a report for an academy. Yes, was very helpful to me because it's a it's a story uh, again told in first person um, by an a, a, an orangutan. That, um, began in the jungle but has been civilized to the extent, um, I guess, far past the extent that he wished to be. So this is the first page of Chapter 1. The middle of my story comes in the winter of 1996. By then we'd long since dwindled to the family, that old home movie foreshadowed. Sorry, the home movie is in the prologue. Me, my mother, an unseen but evident behind the camera, my father. In 1996, 10 years had passed since I'd last seen my brother, 17 since my sister disappeared. The middle of my story is all about their absence, though if I hadn't told you that, you might not have known. By 1996, whole days went by in which I hardly thought of either one. 1996, leap year, year of the fire rat. President Clinton had just been reelected. It would all end in tears. Kabul had fallen to the Taliban. The siege of Sarajevo had ended. Charles had recently divorced Diana. Hale-bop came swinging into our sky. Claims of a Saturn-like object in the comet's wake first surfaced that November. 
Dolly the Clone Sheep and Deep Blue the Chess Playing Computer Program were superstars. There was evidence of life on Mars. The Saturn-like object in Hale-Bopp's tail was maybe an alien spaceship. In, the, in May of 97, 39 people would kill themselves as a prerequisite to climbing aboard. Against this backdrop, how ordinary I look. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. And so, and right there is where you're introducing the, our narrator, Rosemary Cook, and placing yeah. it, like, again, like, uh, repeating 1996 and that she's 22 years old at this time. And, um, and, and that this is the middle of the story. Yeah. So for... Th- I think this is a strategy I, t- I tend to, the sort of... Um, I'm going to tell you a story that there will be things in it that may be a little hard to believe, and so I'm going to remind you of how strange the world actually is before we begin, so you'll find my story plausible. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that I think that works, and 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 creating the. Um, well, here it's interesting to see how you compact all of this and and picking the things that you want us to know. So that also inform in, 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 a, in a way what's coming, the story that, that she'll be telling. Um, yeah. So um, this, can we talk about structure for a bit, Karen? Sure. Because this is, um, so you give sort of this, um, this idea, start in the middle to the father. The father says this to Rosemary when she's little, when she still talks a mile a minute as a way to say, you know, I'm not going to stand at your your um, bedroom door saying goodnight to you forever. Start in the middle with what you have to tell me. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. OK, so this is sort way of to deal with a very, very, very talkative child. <laughs> um, well, I you know, the, um, a lot of the book is organized around when I want the reader to know things and when I don't yet want the reader to know things. And because it's a first-person narrator, um, I created a character uh, complicit in my desires for what I want you to know and what I don't want you to know. Rosemary controls the narrative very carefully and tells you things when she's ready to tell you things and conceals things when um, she's not ready to tell you things. And I thought it made a certain psychological um, sense for her to want to ease into this story, a story that she has carefully avoided telling everybody all her life and now feels forced to to start to talk about. Um, I, thought, I thought it made sense for her to ease in with things that were easier to talk about as she, as she approaches a part of the story that, again, uh, you know, the book has been organized to kind of surprise you with. Um, but uh, it also made sense to me for the reasons that Rosemary outlines in the book. And so um, perhaps this is the moment to say that the sister that she has been missing for 17 years is actually a chimpanzee uh, who spent the first five years as a child in the house with two other children, the older Rosemary's older brother and Rosemary, and was raised very much as a child in the house, but was removed from the house when Rosemary and when Fern, the chimpanzee, were five years old. And again, this is based on an actual experiment that was done in the 1930s 
did not last nearly five years. So my, my experiment goes on considerably longer. But there was an experiment in which uh, an infant chimp and an infant human were raised in a similar sort of manner to sort of compare and contrast what their abilities would be. And, um, and that was the inspiration for the book. That was the story I was telling my daughter when she said I should write about that kid. And when I, um, when I went to do the research about chimpanzees that I've already talked about, um, I knew that there were a lot of, although this is the only experiment I know where the child was the same age as the chimp and they were raised simultaneously that way, there were a lot of cases in which chimps were home-raised in human households, and there were often older children in the house when that happened. And so when I went to look for the information I thought I would need to write this book, I could actually find out a great deal about the chimps who were home-raised. There are lots of books, uh, memoirs that people, uh, that the adults in the house wrote about the period in which a chimp lived in their house and what they learned and what that was like. Um, But I could find almost nothing about the children who had shared the house. And so that's really the part I had to make up. Well, And thank goodness for that, in a way, Karen. Right. Well, yes, it left me a lot of room. Then you had the freedom to do this the creating these characters and and their voice literally like the story they would tell if they could tell it and i think you even have rosemary don't you when she's starting to do her research on it when she's not when she's facing this she actually mentions these books and the authors and yes yes when she you know she spends um the first uh first 20-some years of her life after Fern's departure, just um, trying to erase it from her memory entirely. But when she does begin to face it, yes, she does a lot of the same research that I did. She realizes that in spite of having spent five years with a chimp sister, she doesn't know as much about chimps as as she thought she did. Um, um, Which brings me, I, I lost track of the question I was answering about structure that um Oh thanks Karen Rosemary <laughs> says <laughs> Me too. That Rosemary says that um she didn't tell you that um Fern was a chimp initially because you would read the book very differently. So she wants you to meet Fern as she knew Fern, first as a sister. And um and then you can revise uh at will when you learn that the sister was a chimpanzee but, but she wants you to meet Fern first in a in a way that you don't come to thinking that she's an animal or a pet or um, something lesser than the other children in the household. And th- and that feels so true. Um, something that makes I think it, at least me as a reader um, fully believe in the the mind and heart of this narrator, um, who, as you said earlier is employing like this this death like what I'm going to tell you and what I'm not going to tell you which can sometimes create a strange tension um for for the reader um but be- I think maybe because of what you're just pointing out here Karen um you you, su- you suddenly understand more like that makes it seem like the only way the the most honest the most true way to tell the story well that's that's um, certainly what I felt when I was writing it. It didn't seem 
to me that Rosemary could tell the story any other way or would want to tell the story any other way. And so, in the end, although I was very sorry for all of the problems I had created for book reviewers <laughs> and for my marketing department, I don't really see how I could have changed it. No. I will just have to promise never to do it again. Oh, seriously? Are you joking, right? Because I can't see your face now, and I no one can because of the magic of radio. But you are joking, right? I am joking. Thank yes. gosh. Okay, we're gonna take a a short break while I recover from that. <laughs> I didn't mean I would never write another book, and then I would never conceal another chimpanzee. No. Oh, okay. But but I was thinking you were even talking about like structuring something or doing. So I was like. Karen, that's the thing that I want to talk with you about. All your all your stories are up to this in some way or another. So, okay, well, we'll, we'll, well take... That's true. <laughs> we'll take... That's true. Guilty as charged. <laughs> we'll take a short break, and then we'll come back. Today on Living Writers, Karen Joy Fowler joins us from Santa Cruz, California. We're talking about Karen's novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Karen Joy Fowler joins us from California uh, via phone. Uh, we're talking about, we have been talking about Karen's novel. We are all completely beside ourselves. Um, a, a book that I have to say, Karen, at different times is breaking my heart. I, yes, um, I think I... I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I know. Uh, I also think that it's often very funny. I tried to be very funny <gasps> while I broke your heart. Oh, my, my gosh. Best. So many funny moments. That's so, yes. No, that's, but um, what was it when you were immersed in this world then? Because we, we sort of, we kind of touched on this a little bit about the the research. So it, it seems like 
when you went to Ellensburg, Washington, um, you spent some time, and in the acknowledgments, you 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 give shout-outs to, I hope I'm saying their names correctly, to Tudar, um, Lulis, and, and also the human animals at the, the Chimpanzee and Human Communication Institute. Um, yes. That was a, just a wonderful um, day that I spent with them and uh, a wonderful place. Um, since I was there, uh, Dar has died, which left only two chimps in residence, and two chimps is not enough socialization for either of them, so um, they have been moved to a sanctuary where um, I hope that they are living wonderful lives, but um, but the Institute itself uh, no longer has any chimpanzees in residence. Oh. And in the book, Rosemary, our narrator, also talks about some of the the difficulties because introducing um, then Tattoo and Lulis um, to um, a new community might be difficult for them as well. Might be very difficult, yes. Chimps oh, have, um, as do people, a real insider-outsider sort of um, sense. And uh, I just read, I just read a, a wonderful book by France Duval, who's one of our premier primatologists. It's called The um, Bonobo and the Atheist. Mm. And the premise of the book is that, um, is that empathy is actually a natural primate feeling, that, that it's been observed in all the great apes and in, in other animals as well, but certainly in the great apes. And so we come by it as part of our Darwinian heritage, and it is the basis, really, for our morality, that morality comes from inside our primate natures, and it's not something that has to be imposed from without upon us. But that there's a caveat, because um, because we extend that empathy only to those we see as similar to ourselves in some way, that anything that we um, identify as the other we actually don't even have a neutral feeling towards. We have what DeWall calls an empathy deficit. So, um, and, you know, I think we can see the evidence of this all around us. Uh, uh, but certainly when, uh, when a country goes to war, the first thing that needs to be done is to persuade the population that the people they are fighting are not like themselves but are something else, something the, other. The other, yes. And, uh, and that that seems to be fairly easy to do, fairly easy to persuade people of that. So, um, you know, in, in many ways the impulse in my book, and I think one of the great projects of literature in general, is tr- to try to extend that circle of empathy until it's more all-encompassing than it is at present. And and that yeah, that's and I feel like that's what I have felt the book, some of the work was doing. Not only is it a wonderful story, um, f- filled with humor and heartbreaking moments, but um, that it is doing this this work of especially use. I mean, in some ways, would you say Lowell is one of the characters that even though you you show flaws. In, in each of the characters, um, you're also showing, for example, the older brother, Rosemary and Fern's older brother, Lowell, um, tries to find Fern um, when when she's, I guess, taken from the house as is the 
best way to put it. Um, and then he becomes an activist with a thick um, FBI file. And it, it just makes you think that about the animals at SeaWorld, about any of the animals where they say on, you know, in the film credits, like no animals were harmed during the making of this yeah. film. Um, but you're like, well, it was probably the harm came before the footage that was actually rolling there. Exactly. Exactly. Apparently, you know, I think we've all misunderstood what those words actually meant in a film and thought thought that they meant something bigger. But what they actually just mean is in the actual footage that you watched, no animals were harmed. Um, doesn't have anything to do with what might have happened off camera. So, um, yeah, you know, one of the interesting things to me about researching the book is that I started with a fairly small target. Um, usually when I research a book, I am casting a, a, a much wider net and, you know, I'm, I'm looking for things to include. And, and as the book solidifies in my mind, my, my research will get more and more focused. I, I will need more and more specific things. But I had the opposite experience with this one, that I started out very targeted on, on those chimps that had been raised in human households and then, you know, got interested in chimps in the wild and then got interested in other animals in the wild and ended up um, eventually taking a class on animal cognition at UC Santa Cruz here and, um, you know, looking at bugs and butterflies and everything under the sun. And uh, I'm still kind of, uh, the book is, is, you know, long over, but the research goes on. The, the things that we're learning in animal cognition are so amazing and they're, they're changing so quickly that it's... Um, uh, the one thing I do think has been made entirely clear is that we have underestimated the creatures that we share the world with at every possible point. Yes. Yes, and it seems like we do. We have the empathy deficit regarding these these beings. Um, I'm, I'm you know, we're sort of trained to, I think, because as children, this is one of the things that is... I've been thinking about a lot because it's such a puzzle to me that as children we're really encouraged to identify with animals in all sorts of ways. You know, I, I've got those six grandsons, and half mm -hmm. the books I read to them, the protagonists are animals, but not really. You know, they they're animals who wear pajamas and brush their teeth and kiss their parents goodnight, and um, and so you know the child really is being absolutely encouraged to identify with these animal creatures in children's books and meanwhile you know the bedroom is filled with stuffed animals and yes. so at a certain point um, we're supposed to put all that aside um, as a part of growing up but it, it's a it's a, a funny mental space you have to occupy in order to start out in one place and end up end up in the other and it seems that this is something that you've been thinking about for, I know you just said that you, you've also just taken this class more recently, but even as a child, because on, on your blog, on your website, I, I believe you share a story about seeing a cat, a dog chasing a cat, and, um, yes. and then a conversation with your father about a, 
did the cat i don't know would you want to uh, like tell us this like store this connection karen well it's uh, um you know it basically has to do again with my father's work my father um uh you know watched rats navigate mazes and and um studied learning behavior but he he was a behaviorist and he um believed in stimulus response um behaviors uh for people as well as for animals but um uh it, this is just an argument we began having when i was a very little girl over whether animals could think or not as i said our house was filled with animals and there would be behaviors that I felt indicated uh, planning and intentionality. Um, and my father just, um, you know, would just caution me against anthropomorphizing. So, yes, this whole, this whole issue is, you know, very deep in my DNA and uh, very deep in my relationship with my father. I think that... Um, that if he had had available to him the evidence on animal cognition that we now have, that he might have taken a different point of view. He was a scientist. He paid attention to the data. Yes, and now that there is new data. Yes. And and this connects also, Karen, to um, what you were talking about at the beginning of the program um, about language possibilities and sort of um, who can speak and who who cannot speak and, and, and maybe widening the scope of language so it's not so narrow to be just human, <laughs> sort of how we form words. Well, you know, uh, again, you look at the, you look at these, these chimp studies, which um, I, I told you the book is based on one of the 1930s, but there were a lot of them going on in the 1970s, which is when the book actually takes place, which is where, when the one in the book actually takes place. And they were often focused on language and, you know, would a chimp be able to learn to communicate um, in a human language? And uh, um, initially, they uh, tried to get the chimps to actually vocalize the words well the chimps um, skeletal structure makes that in fact impossible so you know first the first failures of chimps to learn to speak were um, you know just so misguided in their um, in the structure of the experiment so then they moved to sign language and and now there's a lot of computer manipulation involved but they all involve you know uh, chimps learning to speak human language and um, it's it was startling to me how far into the whole process of thinking about this and studying this it was before somebody came up with the idea that maybe it would make more sense to look at how chimps communicate with each other when we're trying to determine what their abilities are um, which involves you know us trying to learn their language rather than the other way around and I think that we are proving no more gifted at learning their language than they have proved at learning ours. You know, we can do bits as they can do bits. But, um, but you know, one of, the, uh, one of the areas of animal cognition that I have been looking at is animal communication. And um, according to the researchers I read who've been studying um, ground squirrels for quite a while now, they... Um, 
there's an enormous amount of information in the little calls and alarm signals that they give each other. Um, that that uh, just to give you what to me is a very startling example. Apparently, if uh, if one ground squirrel gives an alarm call to to the rest of the troop that that something is coming. Um, the signal will include the information of um, if it's a person, how big the person is, what color shirt the person is wearing, and whether the person is carrying a gun or not. Wow. That's really sophisticated. I mean, that sounds like know. the programs you see on crows, where like yes, their intelligence. Yes, very smart. And, and communication abilities. But that, but that And when you say ground squirrel, that also... As, that makes me also feel silly. It's like, yet again, I'm like thinking, you know, why should that surprise me? Of course they are <laughs> communicating at that level information that's necessary to their survival. I guess it certainly startled me. I mean, I, you know, I knew that they were communicating, but um, it startled me to, to learn that we now think that level of detail is included. I've often thought that a squirrel has been yelling at me. The squirrel effective. Yeah, and now I know. Thanks, Karen. Now I know I was I was right all along. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Well, you'll just have to cut it out, whatever it was you were doing. Better, yeah. Stop doing it. Straighten up my act. <laughs> Karen, we'll take a short break, and then we'll come back. Okay. Um, today, right. today on Living Writers, Karen Joy Fowler joins us via phone from Santa Cruz. We've been talking out about her book, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Corn in the fields, listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Karen Joy Fowler joins us via phone um, from Santa Cruz. We've been talking about Karen's wonderful um, and beautiful um, book, We Are All Completely Besides Ourselves. Um, Karen, thanks so much for talking with me today on the program um, about this, this absolutely lovely book of yours. Oh, thank you so much. And so when you come to the Novi Library in November on the 18th, um, will this be for an, another book tour? Is that, will you be having another book coming out or? 
I no, I am sadly I am nowhere near having another book coming out. But uh, so I will be talking about this one again. Oh no, this is great. No, that's perfect. Don't. This is wonderful. <laughs> this is so now it can genuinely. Okay, so everyone, this is can be one of your summer reads, and then by the time winter starts rolling around, we can all get together and <laughs> talk about this book when Karen comes yeah, to town. Please come. Please come to the library. <laughs> and. And Karen, this this actually um, your book is just it's it's so rich um, with, uh, I guess, people who you want to know (laughs) and rich with imagination. And I actually, yeah, and I won't, I feel like I'm, I I don't mean to go on and on about it, Um, but feel free, please. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But. It reminds me, actually, also um, of this conference that I heard that you attended, the Imagination Conference at Cleveland State. And I just love the idea of that. And I feel like for for um, like an imagination conference and, and you've you've also been working in science fiction and fantasy. Um, you you are the president of Clarion right now, the, um, the Clarion Foundation. Right. Yes, I am. And and currently, there's you're having uh, the Clarion Foundation is having a writeathon, um, and you can everyone can check this out clarionwriteathon.org. Um, no punctuation. Please do. We're in our second week, but you can still join. It's a it's a fundraiser for the Clarion Workshop, but also um, we hope a helpful sort of deadline to give aspiring writers. Um, for themselves, that, that they, uh, if you join, you you have a goal um, and six weeks in which to try to accomplish it, either in terms of how many pages you'll write or how many hours you'll work or whether you'll finish a story or, or whatever. And if you're not a writer, then you can sponsor somebody trying to write that number of pages or work that number of hours. And so, and how did this... Did did you do something like this at some point, Karen? Um, was that had that been key and part of how you kind of got yourself um, producing or in the habit or, or or where is your connection with Clarion? Uh, Clarion is uh, just a workshop that I taught at several times, um, and uh, it's a it's a very old and established workshop. It's nearing its fiftieth year now. Wow! And it used to um, be in East Lansing there oh. every summer, um, but um, we got, had a you know at the point when. All of the money to the schools was drying up. I don't know that we've actually ever left that point, but we ran into a financial crisis and had to move um, out to San Diego. And uh, and at that point, the the two people who had been running the Clarion Writerthon were two wonderful writers named uh, Damon Knight and Kate Wilhelm. Um, Damon Damon had died, and Kate was um, tiring. And so asked me to take it on for her. But mainly my, my main role is fundraising, which is not something I'm so great at, but I am doing my best. No, I hear you. Yeah, we have an annual fundraiser here, too. And, and it's very important, though. I mean, you must. Yeah, it's because you, you believe in this. Um, and it's in its 50th year. 
This it is something is. that it's needs a wonderful program. to keep lasting. Um, it feel and probably launches people and and as writers you're doing so much work alone, a place to come and build community. Absolutely. No, we have a we we are very, very proud of the things that our alums have gone on to do. And you you are also um a, the co-founder of the Tiptree Award. Yes, that's also a science fiction connection, uh, um, uh, an award that's given annually that it's just now in its 25th year for um, work of speculative fiction, which basically means science fiction or fantasy, something with a fantastical element that um, focuses on gender in an interesting way makes you think about gender in, in a new and different way. Yes. And this might be, Karen, if we can, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to get you back for the second conversation, apparently. But it, this, like, um, thinking about what aspects, if any, right? This is from, I think, the website. What aspects, if any, of writing are essentially gendered? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I would like to say just something about um, the imagination uh, workshop, which I did teach at for many, many years, but um, uh, based on your response, partly, it, it has occurred to me that um, that when I talk about my books, when other people talk about other people's books, when people review books or interview books or interview someone about books, Frequently we focus, as I have done, um, on the research and on the parts that are true. And I am, you know, equally interested and maybe more interested in the parts that are just purely out of the imagination. But they are so much harder to talk to or to teach or to even think about. But that's, you know, that's the part that is really of most interest. So what do you, what do you... what are you? What do you trust then, um, Karen? When you're, um, for over a decade, kind of um, mulling over the voice of Rosemary Cook. You know, I'm just um, trying to create a character that makes sense to me, partly um, a character that I'm going to like enough to want to spend the four years it's going to take me in her company to write the book, a a character that I hope will be vivid. Um, I have all sorts of tricks. We we do not nearly have the time for me to talk about things that I try to do if, um, to create characters when I'm writing books. If, uh, you know, if I run aground, I have all sorts of exercises that I do myself to try to shake loose and get, get the character to come into better focus or, or just be a more interesting person. Could I ask you a question? Do you have a, a, a tip that you go to for when you need to make the character flawed? You know, because you're like you said, you want to like love the character, or like the character to spend the four years with them, but they can't be true really without these other parts. Do you have? Um, oh, a way I actually f- don't think that that you know, purely good people are likable at all. They just, they're just a reproach to all the rest of us. I think I'm much more likely to be sympathetic to a character who tries to be a, a good human being but fails periodically than I am to someone for whom it's effortless. I know, and and I, don't, I don't actually need to, you know, to think this is a character I would like to have a drink with. Um, I just have to, I have to, 
um, have enough sympathy and um, and enjoyment. I have to enjoy their company more than I have to like them. And and so, is it fair? To, have you ever had to do like what's what's an exercise that you you have used that comes to mind? Maybe to give someone a likable trait then. Um, well, um, I don't know, again, if this is exactly a likable trait, but um, right. <laughs> uh, hopefully uh, hopefully, inc- could increase sympathy for a character. Um, I-, I got this idea from a writer named Gil Dennis, and um, I have adapted it for my purposes when I write. But it's quite simply that um, I pick a-, a very heightened emotion, you know, a large emotion like terror or shame or joy, and I go back into my character's childhood, and I try to uh, write about an early, early, early experience of that emotion um, as part of my character's history. And sometimes, um, you know, as I said, it might not make the character a better person, but it maybe makes them a more sympathetic person if you understand some of the things they've faced. Piaget, the great child psychologist says by the time we're six we have experienced every possible human emotion so i usually do when i do this exercise i put it pretty early in my character's childhood and so you know these characters it wasn't just we just you just didn't know rosemary cook because this was part of the time we were going to spend with her you would have known parts of rosemary cook even if we met her in her 50s i hope so yes that's the goal. You know, there are characters in books that you don't get to know well, and they can be kind of um, bland and serviceable. But anybody that you get to know well, I think, has to be, just has to be a lot more interesting than that. As as anybody that in your life you actually know well, you know, sooner or later you uncover whatever insanity exists at their heart. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Well, well, Karen, thank you so much for being on the the program today. I've really loved talking with you. I have had a great time. Thank you. And I will look forward to the next time. Well, me too. Me too. And and so we're thinking in November, around November 18th, everyone. So, And in the meantime, the summer read, the Living Writers first ever summer read, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, a novel by Karen Joy Fowler. Um, Karen, maybe next time we'll we'll work in some more of the other books, the Jane Austen Book Club, for example. And I would love to do that. Let me just say, anybody who's going to read the book now, um, you will have to pretend that I did not tell you that Fern is a chimp so that you can be surprised <laughs> as you were supposed to be surprised. Pretend Pretend this conversation never took place. It's, everyone promises. Everyone's promising now. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Karen. Um, and so, and thanks to everyone out there for listening. Thanks to the Liz for engineering. Um, today on the program, Karen Joy Fowler has been talking with us about her novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. <laughs>